in confusion, in the depths of shame. The good deeds a man has done before defend him. We begin our platform with music from today's musical guest, Billy Aim. I was gonna poll the audience how to pronounce the band name properly. Does anyone know? I looked it up online. All right. Well, it's I L Y A I M Y. Hey there. My name is Rob Hinkle of the band Iliami here in Baltimore, Maryland. Iliami stands for I love you and I miss you and core to our little family purposes coming together from all sorts of backgrounds because I believe we're better together than we are apart. It seems like coming together gets harder and harder, but that just makes it all the more important. And this is a song about how I don't actually think there's as much hate and evil keeping us separate as we think there is. Just a lot of scared people and a lot of hurting people. This is a tune called Everything Hurts. Thank you for listening, and thank you for coming together. Well done.
That was great from our musical guests. I'm just going to go by what the acronym means, which is I love you and I miss you. So that's the name of the uh, group. Welcome again. I'm Brian. And each week we, we read our statement of purpose as a reminder of our shared values. If you're interested in taking a turn to read the statement of purpose, you can sign up at tiny.cc slash read SOP. Here's our statement of purpose. The Washington Ethical Society is a humanistic congregation that affirms the worth of every person. We strive through our relationships to elicit the best in the human spirit. With faith in human goodness, we appreciate each person's unique capacities. We joyfully celebrate together and support each other through life. We nurture a sense of reverence and responsibility for each other and the earth. We warmly invite you to our community of children and adults as we work for a world where love and justice crosses all borders. If you're joining us from afar and have a candle at home, I invite you to light it now as I light our community candle and share our candle lighting words. May we kindle within us the warmth of compassion, the light of understanding, and the fire of commitment to build a brighter future for all. Each week, we ring this chime in solidarity with people around the world. Today, I'm particularly mindful of the epidemic of gun violence. As we listen to the chime, let us remember our connection to each other and the world around us. Let us open our hearts to compassion for those who suffer. and let us commit ourselves for the work that calls for our love.
This morning's meditation um, it's gonna be a little different than what we maybe normally would do, so uh, bear with me. <clears throat> As you enter the main hall, and hopefully we can pan over with the cameras, uh, you may have noticed this table at the front. It is reserved to honor missing service members. I will explain. Set for seven, the empty places represent Americans who were or are missing from each of the services. Army, Marine Corps, Navy, Air Force, Space Force, Coast Guard, and civilians. It symbolizes that they are with us in spirit. Some were very young when they went into harm's way. However, all Americans should never forget the brave people who answered our nation's call and served the cause of freedom in a special way. I would like to explain the meaning of the items on this table. The table is round to show our everlasting concern. The tablecloth is white, symbolizing the purity of their motives when answering the call to serve. The single red rose reminds us of the lives these Americans and the loved ones and friends who keep the faith awaiting answers. The yellow ribbon symbolizes our continued uncertainty, hope for their return, and determination to account for them. A slice of lemon reminds us of their bitter fate, captured or missing in a foreign land. A pinch of salt symbolizes the tears of our missing and their families. The lighted candle reflects our hope for their return. The glasses are inverted to symbolize their inability to share a toast with us. The chairs are empty. They are not here.
the honor of introducing Mike Kravitz today. As many of you know, he's a longtime member. He's been involved in the building team, OWL, SEEK, and uh, I'm excited to present and introduce him today for our platform address. Thanks, Brian. Um, good morning. Uh, I'll, I'll admit that uh, while this platform was scheduled months ago, and surprisingly, I did not procrastinate to write it, um, somehow ethical culture, the atom bomb, and big moral questions uh, seems the wrong, wrong topic for today. Um, I, I will concede that I'm not the right person for addressing um, some of the current issues that are in the news this week, um, in Texas in particular, um, and I am not going to be that person to address them right now. Um, so I do apologize for that in advance. Um, please do not judge me too harshly for uh, continuing with my planned remarks for today. Uh, I am obliged to start this morning with a couple disclaimers, the first of which uh, might well be the first time uh, in this building, but the opinions expressed in this talk are solely those of the author and do not reflect or imply endorsement or official positions by the United States government, Department of Defense, or Department of Energy. <laughs> Got to get that one out of the way. Second, um, I wrote this platform while simultaneously writing several other papers as part of classes I was taking for Air Command and Staff College, which is an Air Force professional military education program for field grade officers. Um, so there may be some overlap between what I was doing that and what you're going to hear today. Um, in fact, I, I guarantee it. Um, so uh, just to kind of put it in context, I will be taking a gigantic step out from the realm of uh, domestic policy uh, addressing more geopolitical issues and questions of national will and power. So frame your mind there. Uh, next, I said there's several. So next, a quick public service announcement. Um, as you are aware, tomorrow is Memorial Day. Um, and while I don't want to insult anyone's intelligence, I do feel it necessary to briefly address the difference between Memorial Day, Veterans Day, and Armed Forces Day. Uh, Memori Memorial Day is in honor of those killed in service to the nation. Veterans Day is in honor of those who previously served and are no longer in the military. And Armed Forces Day is in honor of those currently in service. That was last Saturday. Uh, that was put that one on a Saturday, so we don't have to get the day off. Um, but uh, please don't say happy Memorial Day. Um, it's not a happy day, uh, particularly for those of us, um, not just me, but in the, in the uh, community and nation as a whole, who have lost friends and loved ones. So PSA, over. Finally, I have a confession to make. You ever have an opinion on something that you are personally very confident in, but somehow know that if you said it out loud to other people, it would be a, uh, an unpopular opinion? No? Oh, okay, just me. All right, great. Um, so as I mentioned, the title of this, this platform, um, if it's not enough of a hint to you, uh, ethical culture, the atom bomb, and big moral questions, uh, I will be discussing 
nuclear weapons today. So another heavy topic for you, how lucky. Um, given that tomorrow is Memorial Day, I, 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 you may expect me to talk about things like patriotism, service, sacrifice, duty, honor, country. Um, and, and while I do have thoughts on those things, uh, again, I'm going to let you down because uh, that's not what I'm here to talk about. Today, I'm actually, uh, I, I'm, I'm here to confess something to you, which is I, I am pro-nuclear weapons. Um, I, I don't think you probably hear that around here very often. That may be a surprise to some of you. Maybe not. Um, by the end of the platform, I'm sure you would have picked up on that, but I just want to come out front and own it. Um, and I can tell you, I know it's not always a popular opinion because I get to hear it at home. Um, <laughs> by the way, uh, today is Robin and I's 13th wedding anniversary. So uh, happy anniversary. If, if, if anyone was curious, uh, Lace is the traditional 13th wedding anniversary gift, uh, or, or textiles and fur are the modern gifts, so uh, we'll see how that goes today. <laughs> Anyone who's been around ethical culture for any amount of time has undoubtedly and invariably heard of Felix Adler, the founder of this movement. If you haven't heard of Adler, uh, welcome to Wes. Uh, there are plenty of books available in our library, but today I would like to discuss another ethical culturist in history. His name was Robert, born to German Jewish immigrants in New York City in April of 1904. Robert and his younger brother Frank were raised in the New York Ethical Society, where their father was a member of the board of directors. Uh, they attended the Ethical Culture Fieldston School. Pretty well, uh, well off of their time, Robert's family valued education and ideals that even in today's America would be considered very progressive. As such, during the McCarthy era, later in their lives, uh, Robert and Frank were both accused of being communists and were routinely followed and wiretapped by the FBI. Also for our newcomers, that's something else Wes has in common with this story. So, uh, Robert was even accused of being a Soviet spy at one point. Um, he was, and I know many of us can relate, incredibly introverted and often struggled to make friends. He suffered from debilitating bouts of anxiety and depression and often turned his attentions to things going on within his mind um, and observations of the natural world. In his teen, teens, uh, Robert excelled in math and the physical sciences and eventually went on to study an emerging scientific field in the 1920s, theoretical physics. After years of study in Europe, earning his PhD at Cambridge by the age of 23, also studying in Germany, Robert came to know and work with such famed physicists as Arthur Compton, Ernest Lawrence, Albert Einstein, Linus Pauling, and Max Planck. If some of these names seem vaguely familiar to you, uh, think back to your high school chemistry and physics classes, the Compton atomic model, uh, Einstein's theory of relativity, Planck's constant. Uh, th these are the names of scientists who would forever change the scientific world with their discoveries. By several accounts, Robert was often involved in many of these discoveries, and he is even said to have done the scientific proofs to derive them. However, none, or at least very few, uh, are named after him. That's not really the kind of person that Robert was. He aspired to acquire knowledge and generally avoid the public eye, unlike some of his contemporaries. He enjoyed reading various philosophical texts in their original languages, 
At one point, he even taught himself Sanskrit so that he could read original Far Eastern writings. He would eventually become a professor at UC Berkeley, Harvard, and later Caltech. As the Second World War got underway in the 30s, Robert, like many Americans, didn't initially have much of a stance on what was happening in Europe. It was their problem. Many Americans had ties to England, France, Germany, Italy, and they, they lamented a war that was never supposed to happen. After all, World War I at this point was still known as the Great War, the war to end all wars. This period was sort of a political awakening for Robert who had once claimed to not even know about the stock market crash in 1929 until six months after the fact because he avoided newspapers and radio. Soon enough, though, reports of fascism, oppression, genocide made their way to America, not only of European Jews, but all non-conforming ethnic, religious, and marginalized groups, including people of color, gays, Romanies, Catholics, the disabled, and anyone who dared support their neighbors. Robert's Jewish heritage and ethical culture values called him to action both in his personal and professional life. He contributed money to evacuate German scientists from the Third Reich. After all, many of them were his colleagues um, and friends that he had studied with. He was particularly aware of the Russian death toll on the Eastern Front and sympathized with their uh, massive losses along with their Marxist ideals, because he was an ethical culturist after all. Uh, because of his education and scientific clout, he was approached by the US government about working on a project in 1942, which ended up being sited near a small boarding school in New Mexico, uh, an area which he had passed many times in his 20s while on vacations camping and riding horses in the wilderness. Robert readily agreed to the project and would use his knowledge and skill to contribute what he could to the war effort. The project was to design and build a theoretical weapon more powerful than anything that had been seen on Earth. And not only that, to design and build this weapon before the German scientists were able to do so. The goal was to supply the Allied powers with this weapon, defeat the Nazis, and end the war as quickly as possible. If by now you haven't figured Robert's last name in my Paul Harvey-esque story, uh, the man I'm describing is one J. Robert Oppenheimer, who co-led the Manhattan Project. And now that you know the rest of the story, I can get on to some of the more salient details. Robert, uh, who went by Oppie actually, so I will refer to him as Oppie most of the time, uh, was a scientific director for the Manhattan Project, working alongside Brigadier General Leslie Groves, for you DC history buffs in the house, uh, you may recall that then Colonel Groves was the civil engineer responsible for construction of the Pentagon. Uh, the two men butted heads in nearly every way. Oppie was soft-spoken, thoughtful. Groves was gruff and quick to anger. Groves in the Department of War wanted to bring the entire project under the military for the purposes of secrecy and control, giving commissions to the scientists. Oppie, failed the physical test on account of his generally poor health and balked at the idea of military control of his experiments. In the end, Oppie was able to use his connections to UC Berkeley to sponsor and pay scientists, giving a cover of secrecy to the project and maintain independence, at least to some degree, from the military. This split 
between military and civilians would become incredibly significant in the nuclear era and is a, ne a legacy that endures even today. After the war, Oppie worked voraciously against proliferating the bomb, seeing it as a Pandora's box that had been opened. He, along with many of the other scientists on the project, were disappointed in the war, uh, dis disappointed the war in Europe had ended prior to the A-bomb being ready. He was also upset about the bombings in Japan, particularly the second one dropped over Nagasaki, finding it unnecessary uh, for the purposes of war. Going so far as to tell President Truman to his face in the Oval Office in 1945 as much and advocating for banning the bomb altogether. Truman's response to, um, to Oppenheimer, uh, which, which he said to Dean Acheson, his uh, Undersecretary of State at the time was, quote, I don't want to see that son of a bitch in this office ever again, end quote. So coming in strong. Uh, still, uh, despite that, Oppie was instrumental figure in drafting the Acheson Lilienthal Report in 1945 and 46, which would, uh, would have put all fissionable nuclear materials under international control under the UN. Uh, it was rejected by the Soviet Union because they didn't trust the United States and um, the, the effort was, was given up. Once the Manhattan Project was uncovered, uh, Oppie became famous and gained a platform from which he was able to steer public and political discourse about arms control and weapons development. He even appeared on the cover of Time magazine in November of 1948. He famously opposed development of the hydrogen bomb, which was first tested in 1953, and publicly opposed the notion of gunboat diplomacy as the US-Soviet arms race gained momentum. In 1954, Oppie was stripped of his security clearance after some highly politicized hearings following intense and frankly questionable investigation under J. Edgar Hoover's FBI. Uh, out of those hearings, though, arose two major schools of thought, which may sound familiar. Number one, the Soviet Union is an existential threat to the United States, and we must be able to launch a massive retaliation strike in the event of attack. Therefore, the way ahead is to build bigger, better bombs en masse. Or two, targeting civilian populations which was technologically required at the time based on uh, accuracy of, of the delivery systems. Targeting civilian populations amounted to genocide. The way ahead is to develop smaller tactical bombs, increase conventional military capabilities, and engage in arms control treaties. This debate, along with the moral responsibilities of scientists and their inventions, um, have become Oppie's legacy since his death in February of 1967. He was 62 years old. Oppie's story is certainly unique, but the geopolitical circumstances in which it occurred are not. As this community well knows, the current Russian war in Ukraine reeks of World War II era tropes. And we've already seen a lot of the same language to justify uh, Russian invasion. What then perhaps prevents one of our own children in this community from following a similar path to, to Oppie. Perhaps a child of one of our board members will use their particular talents 
in a pursuit of a project to bring an end to some injustice, maybe war, and perhaps the outcome won't be as they had intended. Advancements in technology since the 30s and 40s have, have certainly put us in a brave new world in comparison to, to back then. But with the advent of the internet, the democratization and now weaponization of information, the United States is, is waning as a world's hegemon. The geopolitical liberal, ugh, that's, a, that's a mouthful right there, excuse me. The geopolitical liberalist, there you go, um, might, might argue that that's actually a good thing. Um, because we are forced into cooperation with other countries um, as we lose our ability to act unilaterally. The realist, on the other hand, might say that this is a dangerous prospect because even as we cooperate internationally, other countries don't. Um, so we, uh, we lose our ability to shape our, the, the world order in our favor. Um, I, I would submit that probably most people fall somewhere in between. Um, to be clear, the, the ability to shape the world order is, is not limited to questions of military power and, and economic gain. Um, climate, environmental justice, human rights, economic rights, justice, um, values that this community stands for, those, those are all on the table as uh, geopolitical issues and whether we like it or not, whether we agree with it or not, nuclear weapons do exist and, and are a key element to American power in the world. A, a central piece, a backbone even, to our national security uh, strategy. Again, the, the NSS is not limited to the questions of military power, but it includes all facets of national power. Diplomacy, information, military, economic, um, commonly referred to as dime. I'm sure uh, many of you have heard this before. And I know before someone interjects and says that that's a sort of simplistic way to look at national power, like, okay, I get it, yeah. Um, I'm a maintenance officer. So small words, big pictures. Uh, dime works well for me, so. Um, I, like many of others, millions of others, like many of you and Oppie, felt a call to action. That feeling in your gut that you must do what you can to further the cause of justice in our world. If ethical culture had a doctrine, uh, this idea would certainly be part of it. Uh, Hillary Clinton said it well um, when she was asked about her, her worldview. She, she referenced her Methodist upbringing and said, um, it is our moral duty to, quote, do all the good you can for all the people you can in all the ways you can for as long as you can. I think, I think that rings true. Uh, for some, and surely many here and online, uh, that means protest. For some, that means working for or with international or domestic NGOs. Um, with a mission of advancing various forms of justice. There's, there's a lot of directions those can go. Perhaps you did that through West even. For many in the national capital region here, uh, it means working for the government. Um, for me, it meant joining the military. For Oppie, it meant pursuing a project that would forever change the world. So uh, I want to put this ethical question to you. Don't worry, it's rhetorical. 
So. Was he wrong? Removing your, your hindsight bias, right? This is 1942 at the time. Was he wrong for embarking on his journey to build the A-bomb to end the war? A scientist and an inventor to his core, Oppenheimer was driven to make the physics of the A-bomb work. He recruited hundreds of engineers, physicists, explosive experts to work it all out. The Los Alamos facility in New Mexico ended up employing over 6,000 people during his tenure. It's much, much bigger now. Um, they developed the technology to enrich uranium, to create plutonium, and solve incredibly pro uh, complex problems that had never even been conceived before. They were able to synchronize precise timing for their experiments to within thousandths of a second, coining the term uh, a shake, as in the shake of a lamb's tail, um, which is a true, this is a true term. Um, it is defined as uh, one ten thousandth of a second. Um, which is the, the amount of time it takes for one generation in a nuclear chain reaction. All that with um, slide rules and pencils. Uh, opening words this morning from um, Bhagavad Gita. Um, those were actually quoted by Oppie before the first nuclear detonation at the Trinity test site in Alamogordo. Um, it expressed both his hopes and fears with his invention. Also from Bhagavad Gita comes a line for which perhaps Api is more famously known to have quoted, which is, now I am become death, destroyer of worlds. By now we know the result. He and the rest of the Manhattan Engineering District were successfully able to design, build, militarize weapons, which would devastate Hiroshima and Nagasaki compel the Japanese to surrender and end the war on all fronts. Oddly, but perhaps not all too surprising in the government or in the context of government projects, uh, the A-bomb wasn't quite used for what it had originally been intended. Although I'll ask again, was he wrong? By then, perhaps in 1945, the Manhattan Project had already gone far enough that it couldn't be stopped, per se. But without the A-bomb, the U.S. was planning a land invasion of Japan. We had expected millions of U.S. and Japanese deaths, civilian and military, and another urban war, which would be much like what we had already seen in Europe. So what would have been the next right step in the summer of 1945? Ultimately, though, that was the goal of the project, to develop the, the bomb and end the war before the Nazis could. But therein lies the paradox of the bomb itself. Create a weapon so powerful it will end war. At the end of World War II, that paradox did not go away but rather it grew into what we now would refer to as deterrence theory, as the Soviet Union developed their own nuclear capabilities. By developed, I mean stole and developed. As I mentioned earlier, while he was still alive, 
Uh, Oppie was at the forefront of steering policy, even as he sometimes, and frankly often, was unsuccessful in his efforts. As a result of his influence, though, deterrence theory had many iterations over the years. As presidential administrations changed, technology developed. Uh, from, I'm sure everyone's familiar with, mutual assured destruction in the Eisenhower era, flexible response under Kennedy and Johnson, prevailing under Nixon and Ford, countervailing under the Carter era, and Reagan's uh, unwinnable war. Of course, up until uh, today's uh, highly tailorable strike packages that, that we currently have. It spawned dozens of weapon types and designs. The idea being that the United States could develop a new type of weapon, either more powerful or more usable than the last, or increase the size of the stockpile such that it could withstand and overwhelm the capabilities of the Soviet Union. Oppie's also the reason the current nuclear weapon establishment at the Department of Energy's National Nuclear Security Administration maintains a design principle called always never, as in a weapon always works when you want it to work and never works when you don't want it to work. Um, it's an incredibly difficult technological feat uh, to have something perfect in that sense. Um, and, and, and billions of dollars have been spent over decades to try and figure it out. And I can tell you from personal experience, without going into detail, um, that it is incredibly complex and highly secretive. So um, that's all I have to say on that. Deterrence became a moving target intended to prevent another large-scale war as seen during the 30s and 40s. Have there been mistakes in the past? Yes. It's a big head nod, yes. Uh, was above ground testing environmentally and biologically damaging? Of course. Are we still paying the price for that? Yes. Um, did it displace indigenous peoples in the Pacific? Yes. Has the US Senate, uh, Senate ratified the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty? No. Is the Non-Proliferation Treaty a means of exploiting non-nuclear nations? Arguably, yes. Has the U.S. taken steps to minimize the environmental impacts of deep underground testing and ultimately prevent the need for nuclear testing altogether? Also, yes. Has the U.S. taken affirmative steps towards drawing down the nuclear stockpile and increasing weapon safety? Yes. Has the U.S. designed and implemented measures to prevent the need for launch on warning, reducing the risk of accidental nuclear war? Yes. If making it through the last presidential administration without nuking a hurricane isn't proof of that, so I'm not sure what is. <laughs> All right, a little levity. That's good. All right. Uh, um, I, I, I am going to pause here because I, I can feel some exasperation. I can feel the weight in the room even for those folks online. Um, so much for an end of war, right? Korea, Vietnam, Gulf Wars, Iraq and Afghanistan, Ukraine. Not to mention smaller engagements that we wouldn't call war. Bay of Pigs, Panama, Kosovo. In reality, the creation of the A-bomb did not end war, as was originally hoped. 
So how do we say that nuclear deterrence or nuclear weapons in general have worked? Does anyone know how many people were killed in total during Vietnam? You can shout it out, that's fine. What? 58,000. 58,000. I'm talking, I'm talking um, combatants and non-combatants. Uh, it's, it's estimated at about 1.4 million combatants and 2 million civilians. So, um, three and a half million people total. How about the global war on terror since 2001? All theaters. Less, yes. 508,000 combatants, uh, 387,000 civilians. Um, how about World War II? 40 million combatants, 45 million civilians. So orders of magnitude more. Um, and, and I just want to be clear, these are not specific to Americans. I'm talking all countries. Um, and I, I, I want to take a, another brief pause to absorb the weight of those numbers, um, particularly the death toll of, of non-combatants. I also want to acknowledge that these numbers are estimates, and those estimates vary wildly from source to source. Uh, and they also do not account for invisible wounds of battle uh, that, that combatants and civilians alike carry through time and generation directly and indirectly. Um, but I, I bring them up, these numbers, to show the trend over time, that nuclear weapons, since, since the advent of nuclear weapons, the number of casualties in war has, has declined significantly. That's not to say that nuclear weapons give license for militaries to, to take human life, nor do I mean to imply that the taking of those lives uh, should be taken lightly. I know, I know the, the US military is often accused um, of some unnatural pleasure in, in taking lives due to incidents like uh, the My Lai massacre in Vietnam, Abu Ghraib, in Afghanistan, um, and the abhorrent actions of, of former Navy SEAL James Gallagher. But I, I will remind you, and I, and I take solace in this for myself, is that those were war crimes. They were investigated, prosecuted, under the Uniform Code of Military Justice. I will concede that sadly the outcomes don't always serve the cause of justice. Uh, Lieutenant Calley, was acquitted from Milai, and Chief Gallagher received a, a presidential pardon. The reality, however, is 180 degrees from those examples. Um, so, so I bring up these numbers to say that because relatively so few people are killed in war, that um, each engagement is closely monitored by, by top-level commanders and lawyers uh, often in real time now, uh, thanks to technology. The public tolerance for death in war, especially for civilian casualties, um, is at an incredibly low level. And we know that. Uh, for this reason, it's often the National Command Authority um, 
president, secretary of defense, their direct appointee who will authorize these specific strikes. Um, and, and in the case of nuclear weapons, it has to be authorized specifically by the president. But let, let, let's go ahead and recall Oppenheimer's paradox with the bomb. Build a weapon so powerful that it will end war. The existence of nuclear weapons has significantly reduced the casualties in warfare. So by reducing the size of the nuclear stockpile, which is used as a deterrent to avoid war, and therefore death, below necessary levels, or appropriate levels, maybe we should say, the United States has to rely more on non-nuclear forces as a means of exercising uh, its military instrument of national power. And that, by the way, does actually kill people instead of just, just holding a target at risk. Uh, it kills people frequently and, frankly, um, some, something that we are very good at doing um, to the point that it's, it's kind of scary sometimes, uh, even as someone on the, the inside of that. Uh, many smarter people than I would debate what the appropriate size of the nuclear stockpile would be or should be. But my point is that perhaps it is non-zero, because if we could wake up tomorrow and nuclear weapons no longer existed, there would be no cap, no potential consequence for all-out war in the style of World War II again. And despite how terrible reports from the Ukraine have been, and they have been terrible, this war is still limited in scope and could potentially get much worse if escalation were le left unchecked and more of Europe was pulled in. Um, I know that is very frustrating to watch in the news. As ethical culturists, um, without dogma or creed, we, we love paradoxes. Um, we, we celebrate being free thinkers so much that it's on, it's on a giant banner out back here. Um, and anyone who's been to a, a membership meeting can attest that we do not unanimously agree on anything. Um, we understand, though, that there is a balance between our ideals and, and the reality of our lives. Uh, to be productive and influential members of our community here in D.C. or wherever else our, our members may be from online, we know that we have to, we have to live in and embrace these paradoxes, much like Oppie did. We must accept that a, a world where love and justice cross all borders is an aspirational state. And we're working towards it, you know, that, that shining city on the hill, but it's, it's not an absolute. We accept that we don't always have answers and that we must form our opinions through thoughtful research and debate. And doing so requires us to open our minds to sometimes different and, and challenging ideas. Uh, and I'm sure what I've shared today is, is challenging uh, for many of you. I, I accept and acknowledge that. So, so let me frame this another way. An effective nuclear deterrent means less war for our country and those under our nuclear umbrella, ostensibly also for, for our potential adversaries, even at lower levels of conflict. So. I'm not talking nuclear warfare, I'm talking all levels of, of warfare. Nations, particularly near-peer states with their own nukes, 
do not wish to risk possible escalation to the nuclear brink because of the potential of devastating consequences. Each time we use our, our national instruments of power, remember that dime construct, uh, it, it's a potential off-ramp to de-escalate conflict. It pushes nations towards diplomacy, which uh, I, I would dare say that, that that's something we can all agree is a good thing. Uh, for, for example, the Korean War armistice came within weeks of the United States testing the first hydrogen bomb because uh, the USSR feared uh, what the US might do um, with this new capability. Uh, the, and also the, the, the recency of Hiroshima and Nagasaki um, had convinced them of our will to actually use it and, and drop a bomb in anger. Uh, we all famously recall the Cuban Missile Crisis, where US spy planes located Soviet missiles in missile sites in Cuba. President Kennedy used a, a whole of government effort to avert up another potential nuclear war with the USSR when he, he drew the proverbial line in the sand and declared he had an ace up his sleeve, right? That ace, by the way, was the first fielded Minuteman One intercontinental ballistic missiles in Malmstrom uh, Air Force Base, Great Falls, Montana. Consequently, uh, the 10th Missile Squadron out there, still active, uh, they're still known as the aces. Saddam Hussein, who by all means was out of touch with reality by the end of his reign, uh, feared a U.S. nuclear response to the use of chemical weapons against Kuwait. So he didn't use them when he invaded. His own people, that's different altogether, but um, as far as invading another country, he, he did not use his own WNDs. Vladimir Putin right now, however, does not feel deterred by the U.S. or NATO, um, which is why he feels he can take military action in Eastern Europe. We, uh, what would have been the course of events if NATO, which is a nuclear alliance at its core, was well-equipped and willing to use nuclear force if necessary, or even conventional force more so than they already do? What, what would be the, the course of events if they were willing to do that to defend their interests when the Ukraine, even if they're not a member nation, is... Uh, a NATO interest. So what would be the course of events? Would Russia have been able to strategically undermine the alliance the way they have over the last two decades? It gives one pause. Sure, Putin's a megalomaniac and probably be a bad actor still anyway, but, but would, he, would he so brazenly use force the way he has Georgia, Crimea, now the rest of Ukraine? Would the people of the Ukraine be suffering the way they currently are? There's that paradox again. By not investing in our nuclear deterrent from the 90s through the 2010s, our reliance on non-nuclear forces has grown. And the credibility of the nuclear deterrent has waned. Um, we, we, we've seen the results of that decision play out over the last 20 years in Afghanistan, in Iraq, as we focused on counterterrorism, counterinsurgency operations, um, and, and let our nuclear deterrent forces atrophy. 
um, in, in the national security context, I'd say we robbed Peter to pay Paul, but um, I know I, I don't have time to bring up how we've incrementally robbed other programs in this country, like education, healthcare, the social safety net in order to fund the military, but that's a, a separate issue altogether. Nuclear weapons don't themselves solve problems, but they do set the stage for problems to be solved. They're weapons of statecraft, vice kinetic weapons of war. They themselves are agnostic of geopolitical worldview and, and fit into liberalist and realist perspectives, and even uh, constructivist perspectives for, for those of you who I know wanted to bring that up. Um, they are, but they are tools, they are a means to an end rather than end in themselves. Um, and and it, just as a quick side note, I know it's already getting long and I got a lot more to go, but um, the uh, let's just recall that American liberals developed the bomb. Um, liberals ordered the bombing of Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Uh, liberals navigated the Cuban Missile Crisis and led the effort toward ending the Cold War, even if Reagan got the credit. Um, this is not a question of liberals versus conservatives or us versus them. This is a question of how to shape the world in a way where the arc of history does bend towards justice globally. This is a question of how to uphold the dignity of people around the world and promote our democratic values and avoid large-scale war that some fear may be on the horizon. Because nuclear weapons exist, because we can't unlearn them, nor can we prevent others from, from acquiring them knowledge and technology on how to build and employ them. We need to acknowledge and accept that nuclear weapons are a reality and use them to inform, inform our international policy into the future. Instead of demanding their elimination outright, we need to ask ourselves, how can we use nuclear weapons to advance our goals of justice in the world with balancing a long-term desire? to draw down stockpiles as low or as, as geopolitical conditions allow. That, that is our paradox. I, I want to shift gears here uh, for a bit and again recall Oppenheimer's story. Just as his bomb yielded unintended consequences, um, which he spent the remainder of his life facing, anti-nuclear lobbying uh, has caused a significant degradation of facilities and, and support for military families in the nuclear world. Um, this is due to top-line budget cuts um, that have caused the elimination of non-essential functions on, on nuclear bases and military bases writ large in order to keep mission elements funded. Um, this, this is the community I live in. It's where I, I, I cut my teeth in, in, the, in the military. Um, the, these bases are isolated in America's most rural areas. I've seen firsthand incidents of suicide, domestic violence, DUIs, had airmen charged with rape, attempted murder. Uh, I was supposed to be a jury member on a court martial for a case of possession and distribution of child pornography. Uh, the member pled guilty, there was no trial. Um, and th these things happen in society writ large, yes. But they happen at nuclear installations at, at a higher rate. Um, I'll leave the question of correlation and versus causation unanswered, but 
I would invite you to look at non-military communities where crime rates are high and ask yourself why. Certainly it's reasonable to say that strategic divestment in infrastructure and services yield a harder life, um, which sets the stage for higher crime rate, right? Um, I'm, I'm particularly mindful in this moment of uh, Southeast DC, for example, and the challenges that area has faced over the last 50 plus years. Um, what's happened on, on nuclear bases is no different. Um, and, and just as we have a moral imperative to work towards improving conditions in Southeast, um, I, I say so should we work to improve conditions for military families. Um, I'll, I'll add that there are significant racial and socioeconomic factors at play here as well, but again, maybe a topic for another time. And, and I'm not just saying this for myself. Um, it it may, might seem selfish that a guy in uniform is, is asking for, for sympathy, but uh, no, that's, that's not the case. Um, I, I say this because at the airmen I've led, the rough numbers is over a thousand um, individuals plus the, those I haven't met and, and those who will invariably come behind me. Uh, since the end of the Civil War, the U.S. has um, recognized the importance of, of taking care of veterans, stood up the Department of Veterans Affairs, uh, but in, in the tumult of the Cold War, since its end, funding for, for military members, families support, family support for military members, geez. Uh, we're almost there. We're almost there, guys. All right. Um, funding ha has withered. Um, the anti-nuclear fervor after the Cold War um, to, to calling for reductions and getting rid of our arsenal, which, which I don't necessarily dis disagree with in principle, um, have uh, yielded these, these um, unintended consequences. Um, but that's what I kind of want to just draw attention to. Our statement of purpose, uh, as we read every week, seeks a, a world where love and justice cross all borders, but beyond an ideal that I, that I mentioned earlier, what does that mean? Uh, in the context of nuclear weapons, that to me, it meant uh, George Bush Sr.'s nuclear drawdown in the 90s, um, unilateral. Yeah, I, I think that was the right call at the time. It meant bipartisan uh, non-Luger legislation during the Clinton administration, which funded efforts um, up until about 2012 to find uh, and secure orphan nuclear weapons in the former Soviet republics, including the Ukraine, and return them to Russia for dismantlement. But today, it, it also means investing in the nuclear deterrent, sort of a counterintuitive approach. We need to modernize and keep our weapons functional because that our weapons haven't gone away, and nor have our adversaries. In fact, our adversaries are building more. And they're not gonna go away for the foreseeable future. I submit to you that, that getting rid of nuclear weapons altogether would actually cause a collapse of our current world order. And it, it would take us to war. It would lead to war instead of averting it. Again, a, a paradox. If nuclear weapons themselves uh, are a bridge too far for you, uh, which I, I would call a legitimate grievance, um, then, then at least 
I, I would ask that you support military members and their families. Um, think, think what it might say to the world um, if the United States publicly invested in facilities, infrastructure, and services for military families at nuclear bases. And, and to be clear, I'm talking about daycare, school, family supports, you know, healthcare, recreation. I'm not talking about hangars and mission-related stuff. Um, but it, it sends much the same message as new aircraft and weapons. It says that our people are a priority to us. And it, it is a projection of US economic power to bolster the deterrent without funding weapons programs itself to say that these people matter. Here's my bottom line. Whether you agree with what I've said or not, in whole or part, the question of what to do with America's nukes uh, has fallen out of thoughtful debate over the last couple of decades. Um, but current geopolitical conditions are proof that, that it needs to be resurrected. As ethical culturists, it's part of our history, part of Oppenheimer's legacy, to examine all sides of this debate and work to advance our values within the realities of the world in which we live and embrace that paradox. I, I would like to close with this final thought. Um, as I open with, uh, tomorrow is Memorial Day. It is not a happy day. Uh, I hope you've had the opportunity to visit Arlington Cemetery in the past, perhaps tomorrow even, now that it is reopened to the public, um, and, and, and walk among the rows of headstones. On each headstone is a service member's name, rank, service, birth date, death date, and operations they were involved in. Cemeteries divided into sections where service members are buried with their comrades in arms from the, the Civil War, World War I, World War II, Vietnam, et cetera. It's an enormous property, and, and it houses the remains of, of generations of Americans. I encourage you to walk through these sections and see the memorials in, in chronological order, because then I, then I want you to head down to section 60. It's where um, Iraq and Afghanistan soldiers and, and sailors, airmen, Marines are buried. While you will indeed see many headstones, including personal friends of mine, you will realize how few there really are in comparison to previous wars. I can say for, for, for myself that I, I believe it to be true that this is the result of nuclear weapons and, and nuclear deterrence, um, which is a, a tribute to Oppie's legacy, is grounded in ethical culture principles. Of course, uh, to end on a, another good paradox there, that the folks that are buried there, they, they don't care. Um, George Santayana, a poet and philosopher, famously said, uh, only the dead have seen the end of war. I wish you all a quiet and peaceful Memorial Day.
Wow, thank you, Mike. Um, I know that this was a uh, very informative historical and sharing your personal experiences. I really appreciate it this morning. And uh, I know that there's a lot of comments and we wanna take the time now to share our own voices to the morning, sharing our reflections on the platform for what resonates in our own lives. Uh, for our online participants, I invite you to share in the Zoom chat as a lot of you have already started and in the comments if you're watching the recording later. I'll start with the Zoom comments and we'll accept some comments in the microphone from in-person attendees and um, then return to the Zoom participants uh, at the end. Appreciate it. So just want to share, this is from Judy and Randy Myers. Mike, you're uh, amazingly courageous to stand up in front of us and talk about something so difficult for all of us to even look at. Thank you very, uh, so very much for your words. Um, Shirley Storm, wow, Mike, thank you. What a thoughtful and informative presentation. Thank you for your service and the care you give to others. And uh, from Joe Klein, Mike, thank you for an incredibly thoughtful and educational platform. Wow. Terry Smith, one of the most thoughtful platforms I've attended. And Karen Storms, that was fantastic and thought-provoking platform. Exactly the reason why I love Wes. Thank you for bringing your immense knowledge, intelligence, and experience today. And uh, Mirka and uh, Hunter sharing. Thank you, Mike, for a thoughtful platform. Very appreciative uh, you brought this difficult topic. Uh, Mike, thanks, Mike. This is an example of an incredibly complex issue, the ethics which are defensible on either side of the argument. These are the kinds of ethical dilemmas and paradoxes we are challenged to confront in our daily lives. And Sarah Morgan, um, thank you, Mike, for this provocative and stirring platform and for your service to our country. Wish you and yours a quiet and peaceful Memorial Day as well. And uh, I want to go ahead and turn over to some of the folks in the hall with us this morning. Um, please line up, uh, line up with plenty of personal space at the microphone, and we'll hear a few uh, brief comments before returning to our participants online as well. I'm going to echo everything. That, I'm Adam. He, him. Um, I want to echo everybody, everything that the folks online said. It's a great platform. Wonderful to hear. And also take a moment to remember some of the service members in my life, especially the ones that didn't make it home entirely. Um, Laura's Uncle Buddy, who stormed the beaches at Normandy and never spoke of it again. My uncles, both of whom went to Vietnam, one of whom watched his best friend jump on a grenade and then climbed into a bottle. Only one of them ever climbed out. My grandfather, who trained hundreds of ball turret gunners in bases in North Carolina and Texas, 90% of whom never came home. And generations of our friends and families and loved ones who have endured so much to defend and had so much ripped away from them by these incompetence and discomfort of our policymakers. So I absolutely applaud Mike today for coming up and speaking on such a hard topic. And may we all have a more peaceful Memorial Day tomorrow.
Hi, I'm Abby Dakin, and um, um, I found myself thinking of one of my favorite poems. It's called Advice to a Prophet, the prophet being a protester against nuclear war. And it starts with, when you come to our city, as soon you must, not proclaiming our fall, but begging us in God's name to have self-pity. Spare us all talk of the weapon, their force and range, the long numbers that rocket the mind. And he goes on to say, this is Henry Teller, goes on to say basically that we can't imagine, what we can imagine is the world's own change, that the things we love about the world around us will be gone. And I think of that poem, poem often because I work on um, mitigating climate change. That's my, my work. And um, in my mind, the, the, in both cases, we're talking about humanity having conscious control of a power which could easily get and has really gotten beyond our ability to um, make sure the consequences are only the ones we want. You know, what we were looking for when we caused climate change were things that are perfectly normal, greater comfort, greater security for everyone. But if everyone lived like we live now, the world can't support us. So I say this to say that the moral dilemma in my mind presented by nuclear weapons has become inescapable at our level of technological advancement. And even if you eliminated nuclear weapons, which I agree with Mike, you, you could destroy every nuclear weapon now and all the notes about how to make them and we'd be right back here in 20 years. It's not a, once you get there, you can't go back. And so all, all, our only option is to deal with it. I will say that um, the last administration made me very afraid of the US having that authority and power but the elimination of nuclear weapons feels like an impractical way to deal with that. And however hard it is, the only way I can see to deal with that is to defend democracy at home through our own efforts to retake, to retake, um, to reverse the tide, the rising tide of fascism in the developed world. Good afternoon, uh, Jeff Mehal here. Um, what struck me, and I certainly thank Mike for his presentation today, but I wanted to give an answer to his rhetorical question, was uh, Oppenheimer right in what he did? And I have to say, yes, he was right in what he did. Um, if there had not been, well, let me backtrack a bit. One important thing that we tend to overlook is that up until July 16, 1945, no one knew that the atomic bomb would in fact work. Uh, despite the, the expenditure of over $2 billion in 1940s dollars, uh, which would have probably be in the trillions of dollars today, there was no guarantee. Um, and if there had not been an atomic bomb, uh, what would have happened uh, as part of the war? Mike did mention, uh, the planned amphibious assault on the Japanese mainland, Operation Olympic. Uh, probably what would have happened is that uh, uh, the um, Japanese having uh, uh, initiated a, their program of Ketsugo, which effectively 
uh, eliminated the the difference between combatants and non-combatants uh, would have been put into full effect to try to repel the invasion. The casualties would have been horrendous. In the meantime, I think the 20th Air Force would have resumed its uh, low-level incendiary bombing to every city, every town, every location in Japan. Uh, the communications and transport networks would have been totally destroyed. And I can see that there could well have been a case made for the dropping of defoliants to uh, eradicate the rice crop, as well as considered use of poison gas uh, in the, uh, as part of the um, naval uh, bombardment. Uh, the, the U.S. had uh, ample stocks of both uh, mustard gas and phosgene left over from the First World War, uh, developed right uh, here in Washington by my alma mater, American University. So, yeah, but the bottom line is, yeah, they, they haven't, nuclear weapons, atomic weapons haven't eradicated war, but they have eradicated war, but direct war between the superpowers. And unlike, uh, every 20 years or so when the great powers of Europe would be at war, we've not managed, so far at least, though there have been close calls, we have not had a major war with either Russia, uh, People's Republic of China, uh, North Korea, uh, India, or Pakistan. Thank you. Sounds. Oh, I'm Robin, she, her pronouns. Um, Mike won't be one to toot his own horn, but I just kind of want to for a second. Um, so those who've been around West for a while know Mike has been involved with our youth specifically. And he does that because of this, the belief that one of our kids is gonna do something amazing, the belief that all of our kids are gonna do something wonderful, whether that's helping a neighbor, whether that's picking up trash, whether that's cleaning up a stream, whether that's going to college and finding some massive technology that's gonna help all of us. Um, and so I'm taking away today, like, what do I do? I can't, despite my membership in Plowshares and Mike's complete disdain for that, um, that's an anti-nuclear nonprofit. Um, so our house is really fun. Um, what can I do today to make tomorrow better? And I can volunteer in our SEEK program. So I invite all of you that are able, whether or not you have children, whether or not you want children, whether or not <laughs> you think you can, consider volunteering in our SEEK program because I really, I think our family believes what we can do today is prepare our children for tomorrow. Um, so that's my plug for seek <laughs> thank you for all those comments um uh, i'll just check in on zoom as well there's a couple more comments and we'll start to wrap up here um macio thomas uh shared i think this was an amazing gift to the community to explore these moral questions i appreciate your bravery and what many would consider a challenging audience around this topic yet you put it in a, a manner that requires us to deconstruct our ideas and Vincent um, uh, Tyler said, uh, Mike, when I heard about the platform, I did not agree, but I listened to what you said, looking for spots to disagree. After listening to your points, I cannot say that I agree, but I cannot say I disagree with what you said. So I appreciate um, all the comments. Um, thank you to all those who shared their thoughts and attention this morning.
Um, just as we share our perspectives in this community, so too do we share our resources and gifts. Here at West, we split the Sunday collection between our operating budget and a fund dedicated to justice and compassion. This month, uh, half of the offering is dedicated to the Rock Creek Conservatory Conservancy. The Rock Creek Conservancy exists to restore the creek and its parkland as a natural oasis for all people to appreciate and protect. The Rock Creek Conservancy uh, is our partner in stream cleanups along Portal Run, which has been meaningful for multi-generational project um, for West youth and adults, youth and adults. Let's take a moment to prepare to respond to the invitation to generosity. If you're someone who gives by text or in front of a device where you can navigate to the donation page on our website, get your phone or tablet out or navigate to that page now. If you're here in person, there's a basket at the back of the hall to receive your gifts. Half of your undesignated gift will go to Wes, and the other half will go to our Share the Plate partner for the month. I'll pause for a moment so that all who are able can prepare to respond with generosity. On the slide, you'll see a number to give by text. That's 202-335-1885. And you can also make a gift online through the donate button on our website at ethicalsociety.org. Thank you for your generosity. I'll now, we will now receive your gifts and our musicians' gifts of music. Thank you to the many people who helped create this morning's time together. Thank you to our staff, interim senior leader, Lynn Cox, Linda Erzeri, Indara Miles, Robin Kravitz, Macio Thomas, and Tom Hutton. Thank you to our interim music coordinator, Leah Morris, and to the music, musical guest, um, I love you and I miss you. Thank you to John and Abby Dakin, who created our slides and training uh, for hosting the upcoming virtual coffee hour and as our Zoom usher today, and tech team members, uh, Denise Howell, John Leica, uh, Michael Diamond, excuse me, sorry. 
Demian, thank you. And John Pfeiffer, um, thank you to our in-person greeters and all that helped um, make this morning's work together. At the conclusion of the platform, please join us for social hour in person around the foyer in the patio or virtual coffee hour on Zoom. To get to virtual coffee hour after closing words, point your browser to tiny.cc slash westcoffeehour. And thank you also to those who are leading and supporting our work in the weeks to come. You can find information about opportunities to connect in the Sunday links uh, or news and notes email. Here's some of the latest news. Um, as Robin pointed out, Sunday Ethical Education for Kids. This is a great opportunity. I was looking forward to the fall. Enthusiasm of volunteers will be highly determinative of what programs West can offer for the new school year. Please contact C coordinator and Dara Miles to find out more about uh, ethical education. Also had a hot uh, off the press uh, announcement. We've got a, um, let's see, UU meeting uh, on Zoom at, on June 2nd to get ready for the Poor People's Campaign uh, mobilization on June 18th. The board just voted to allow the um, Poor People's Campaign to put a banner on the front lawn to promote this mobilization. Um, let's see, I think it looks like this, a little preview. All right, so we've got some good stuff happening. Um, and whoop. it's there right now. It's there right now. All right, so no, no need to squint at my piece of paper um, if you're here in the building. Uh, but good stuff happening. And then um, June 18th, keep that in mind. Um, there's going to be a budget town hall Thursday, June 2nd, also on June 2nd, at 7 p.m. on Zoom. Take a look at the proposed budget. Come to the town hall with your questions. If you can't make it to the town hall and have questions about the budget, contact um, Mirica, uh, chair of the finance team. Save the date for Sunday, June 12th at 4 p.m. That's the date and time for the spring membership meeting. Woo! When the board uh, elections take place and members vote on the budget for the coming fiscal year. This meeting will be entirely on Zoom. At the same time on June 12th, there will be a youth movie night from 4 to 6 p.m. To repeat for clarity, there will be two events on June 12th, 4 p.m. membership meeting by Zoom, youth movie night in person. We'll come together each week for, uh, as we come together each week for the hybrid, hybrid platform with attendees both in line and um, online and in person. We wish those who uh, can attend platform in person want you to RSVP. Um, we've got tiny.cc slash platform reservation. In-person attendees will also need to bring their vaccination cards or a picture of their vaccination cards. Online attendance will continue to be available for the foreseeable future. You're always welcome to tune in by Zoom. A um, lot going on. You can see the calendar with upcoming events on the West website. And uh, thank you again to all those who made today possible, to the community gathered today, and thank you for being part of Platform this morning. Let's enjoy our closing song of the month. Something within embraces the ocean. Something within melts into the shore. Something within stands still like a mountain. And we become one with them. Every day, every day, every day wonder. Every day, every day, every day one something within cries out to the heavens. Something within 
belongs to the sea. Something within seeks hope in the desert because we are one with them. Every day, every day, every day wonder. Every day, every day, every day one. Every day, every day, every day wonder. Something within, in all of an infant. Something within, in love with the stars. Something within, is blooming in moonlight. This beauty is who we are. Every day, every day, every day wonder. Brief reminders as we close. If you're new to our community, please send an email to our membership coordinator, Maceo Thomas, and introduce yourself. And to reach the virtual coffee hour, just remember it's not this Zoom meeting. If you're on Zoom, uh, point your browser to tiny.cc slash westcoffeehour. And now I invite you to join me in our closing words of the month. Let us go into the week ahead with compassion, understanding, and commitment, nurturing beauty within us, among us, and beyond us, for our hearts and for our quest for a better world. Thank you, everyone, for being here. We look forward to connecting with you soon.